Well, today we are wrapping up this, this uh, Advent series that we have called Yet He Abides, and we've been talking about things surrounding the idea that God has come as Emmanuel. He has paved the pathway for you and me to abide with Him, to dwell with Him, to live with Him. And today we're going to look at and see the pattern of redemption that God follows throughout redemptive history to get us to a place of renewal and new life. Now, I don't know about you, but every year, um, you know, whether it's the TV or magazines or online, every year you and I are flooded with ideas, tools, and products to help us forget the last year, right, and reinvent ourselves in the coming year, right? Yes. I I love it. I love it. More interaction is my favorite. I love it. And this is a longing, a longing woven into the fabric of humanity for reinvention, you guys feel it? Every new year, we, we feel this sense of, I'd love to get a restart, right? Forget the last year and reinvent for the coming year. But in our postmodern, post-Christian culture, self has become the portal for our transformation, And as members of this instant gratification culture, we tend to become impatient with any process of development that requires us more than limited involvement of our time and of our energy. So for an example, if you don't receive the desired outcomes that you're looking for instantly, we become impatient or frustrated, often turning then to a spiritual quest, into a search for the right technique, the proper self-improvement method, the perfect program that can immediately deliver this desired result of spiritual maturity or reinvention or wholeness that you and I so long for, especially around this time of year. We try to create the atmosphere for this right spiritual moment, right? Has anyone ever done that before? That perfect setting in which God can touch us and and into this instantaneous wholeness. And if only we can get on the right track, the right book, the right guru, the right retreat, the right sermon, instantly we will be this reinvented person experiencing the wholeness that we all long for. But what I want to argue today is that renewal is not led by reinvention, but by regeneration of the heart. Amen? John Frame, in his systematic theology book, wrote this about regeneration. His definition is, it is a sovereign act of God beginning a new spiritual life. This year, I don't know about you, but I'm going into this year. I, I tend to do this every year is, is make big goals and ideas and plans for the, for the coming year. Anyone wired like that as well? But I, I, I want this year, instead of more goals to crush, I want 
God's radical renewal, not self-renovation. Amen? And in, in the scriptures, what we see and what we're going to look at today is this idea of spiritual baptism. What we see, the interaction between John and then Jesus coming into the waters happening is not just this moment, but actually what we're going to see is that the Old Testament, that human history has been leading up to this moment that we just read about in John 1. And in the Bible, water in many ways is how God defines chaos and disorder and danger. But it's also out of the chaos of the waters that God brings life and flourishing. See, this idea of the waters of chaos is actually the first image given to us in the Bible. It's meant to describe a state of uncreation, uninhabitable, and unwelcoming to life. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, in chapter 17, uses this metaphor for chaotic waters. It says, Ah, the thunder of many peoples. They thunder like the thundering of the sea. The roar of nations. They roar like the mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters. And woven into the pages of Scripture is God showing us the dangers of living in chaos. The dangers of abiding by our own narratives and attempting to define the way for ourselves. So I want to take us, and if you'll allow me now, I used to teach uh, uh, church history. So I'm going to take you on a little bit of a Bible history uh, journey for, for a moment. Is that okay with you guys in the new year? Is that cool? All right. So in Genesis 1, in the ancient Hebrew text, God's spirit hovers over the darkness, these cosmic waters of wild and waste that makes it impossible for life to be sustained. And then in Genesis 1, it says that God's spirit separates the dark, chaotic waters and it creates a space of life to flourish in the very first verses of our Bible. The very first thing recorded in God's word is of him separating the light from the darkness. And then we see later on in in verses 3 and 5 in chapter 1 of Genesis, the waters above from the waters below and separating the seas from the dry land by gathering waters together. And then the dry land, including the Garden of Eden, emerges from the chaotic waters. And God brings the place of life out of the chaos of water, bringing humanity into a new world. But we all know in Genesis 3, the the narrative shifts, right? Humanity unleashes this chaos back into the world God created from chaos and he created order. But in Genesis 3, humanity unleashes chaos back into the world. And we see God repeating this pattern of separating the waters. But instead of separating the waters to create order, 
we now see this foreshadowing of what is to come. God rescuing his remnant to pass through the waters. The remnant Noah then will emerge on the scene out from the other side to live in this new creation. Or as Tim Mackey would say, live in this humanity 2.0. And then when humanity disrupts God's purpose, we see God using water as a source of of rescue. In Exodus, Moses is delivered through the waters of death in the ark and into the house of Pharaoh. If you look at the, what the, the word for uh, his basket is translated into, it's literally, it, it means ark. And so Moses is delivered using an ark into the house of Pharaoh out of chaos because we know uh, the Pharaoh was trying to kill every firstborn son. And so out of chaos, he's into the house of Pharaoh. And then in Exodus 2, God uses the same word he uses to describe the ark in the story of Noah to describe the basket that is carrying baby Moses, as I just said. Then in Exodus 4, we know Moses is raised in Pharaoh's home and eventually put in charge, but then Moses who knows now as an adult that he's a Hebrew, sees a guard beating on a Hebrew slave, and Moses gets so angry, if maybe you know the story, he ends up killing the soldier and then needing to flee from the house of Pharaoh to the wilderness for 40 years. And then God calls Moses to go back and to free his people from captivity. In a series of events, God forces Pharaoh to free his people and inaugurating this chase after God's people to bring them back into slavery. And God saves his people by leading them through the waters of the Red Sea and into the dry land. Where they are then invited to be God's representatives to the nations. And then the pattern picks up. And Joshua 40 years after the story of Exodus, the Israelites have been in the desert. And now a new generation is prepping to enter into the promised land that God promised. And the Israelites end up spending the night at the Jordan River into the land. If you would bring up that slide of the Jordan River. The priest is instructed to bring the Ark of the Covenant. Now, this is, this is where, at least historically and what we know of, this is where a lot of, a lot of the history of the Jordan River took place. And the pattern, so the, the, the pattern picks up, and God tells uh, Joshua and his people to enter, to go through the waters. God brings his people out of the wilderness, he brings them out of the wilderness through the waters of the Jordan River. But what's interesting is the priest is instructed to bring the Ark of the Covenant, which the Ark of the Covenant we know contains God's presence. And so to bring the Ark of the Covenant into the waters first, and in Joshua 3, it says that God instructed the rest of his people to wait until the priest took the Ark through the waters first. And then to follow his footsteps. Because we know that there is still sin in the world that separates us between God and man. But of course God says there needs to be distance, right? And God is doing the same thing today. 
He's still bringing his people with the same pattern out of the chaotic waters and placing us on dry land where you and I can flourish. And what we're going to see today and what we've just read in, in John 1 is that Jesus is this fulfillment. And he, in one sense, is the promised land. He is where life flourishes and where real life is found. And this pattern of life emerging from the waters begins in the New Testament, doesn't just begin in the New Testament with John the Baptist. And what we've talked about John a little bit already in, the, in this series, but remember, John is this celebrity-like the pastor, right? He's, he's the one getting all the, the requests. He's kind of gringy looking and wears cl- weird clothes. But he does, he's, that, he's that celebrity, kind of like Francis Chan, who doesn't want to be a celebrity. You know what I'm talking about? He's that guy. Um, um, but John is the prophet that God raises up to announce to Israel that the restoration is coming. And in Matthew 3, verses 5 through 6, it says we get a little more insight into this this scene that is taking place. Then Jerusalem and all of Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Did you guys notice where they were baptized? Centuries ago, God told Joshua and the priests to take the ark, his presence, through the river Jordan, and then to follow his footsteps. And then Jesus, here, in the very beginning of the Gospels, is now baptized in the same river that God had commanded Joshua to take his presence through. And what John is intentionally taking Israel through the same waters as Joshua did to recommit to the God of Israel. Now for you and for me, John baptizing in the River Jordan, we don't really stop at that, right, in the gospel, in our gospel readings. We don't really stop there. But for John's audience, for the people reading this in the first century of the church, this is the key for them to understand who John is about to announce. He's going to announce that this, the redemptive plan of God through the chaotic waters of the Jordan River into dry land, all the stories that we've heard leading up to this point from Abraham to Noah to Moses to Joshua, from the beginning of creation to the ark of Noah and the flood being brought to dry land, this God is the promised one who has now come. Jesus is being baptized in the same water the Ark of the Covenant was carried through in Joshua 3. And the reason I'm so excited about this is because for you and for me, what this means is that the redemptive pattern of God means he goes in the waters of chaos first. Amen? He goes in the mess first. And you might be saying, well, man, this past year, I really wrecked it. And I feel guilty. I feel shame. Or maybe you're saying, I, didn't, I don't know if I really wrecked it, but I, I, need, I just need a restart. 
But what God has been weaving into human history is this redemptive plan that he has gone where we should have gone first. Let's read John 1, 29 again. In light of the history, in light of what we have now just seen, John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he whom I said, after I comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I come baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. The Gospel of Mark comes in, comes in, in, in clutch right now because it kind of helps us uh, connect the dots to this redemptive pattern that we see play out in the Gospels. And in Mark 1 it says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening up and the spirit like a dove descending upon him and a voice came out from the heavens, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Do you notice the language? It says coming up out of the water. Can we, just, can we just say it? We don't need another book on the shelf or another tool or resource or five more ways to crush a goal. Amen? I, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I, I turned 36 like two, years, or two days ago. Uh, so I feel like I'm getting older. You know, thank you. Happy birthday to me. Thank you. I love it. I love it. Uh, you know, and I, I'm a, if you don't know what this is, I promise it's not demonic. Um, but I, I'm a three on the Enneagram. Any, anyone know about the Enneagram? Any Enneagram fans out there? I, I see you. I was actually looking for you, too. I love it. I love it. Uh, and, and I'm a, a, on the Myers-Briggs, the commander, I guess, is, is, is the name. So I'm naturally, like, I gravitate towards those kinds of resources, right? Crushing goals and five ways to do this this year and you know, three ways to get buff or whatever it might be, you know, in the coming year. My favorite time of year here at the church is when we do our ministry action plans. I mean, how nerdy is that? We make goals for the year, and I'm like, ah, I love it. Um, it it's, it's just fun. And I understand the draw. But the older I get, and again, I just turned 30, I don't know, maybe it's the, the passing of mid-30s into the later 30s. I don't know what it is. I just, I want the deeper soul questions answered. Do you feel that? I want the new life that God has promised me, not a new goal. Goals are not bad. They're, in fact, they're, some of them are great. But I get more like Paul. I feel like I feel more Paul every year. I, I understand him more. In Romans 6, 4, when he says, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. 
I want that. Do you want that? So what is God's pattern for new life? If we're going to say, okay, I'm going to forget the 18 ways that I can reinvent myself, and I'm going to lean into the renewal that God has promised me when I came out of the the waters, the chaotic waters of baptism into new life and into dry land where life can flourish and happen and where I can live in, this, this, in the streams of living water, and these, these waters of renewal. What is God's pattern for new life and how do I live in this pattern? Well, first of all, flesh gives birth to flesh. You know, we talked about this earlier, but there is a deep desire to remake ourselves. But Jesus said to the man, you guys know Nicodemus, right? He was a wee little man who asked the same question. Is that the right song? I don't know. Yeah, I'm sick. Just, if it's not, just, just throw it out, okay? Um, I don't think it is. Um, so that's okay. How do, how do I get a new life? He came to Jesus and he asked, how do I get a new life? How, how do I get reinvention, Jesus? You know what Jesus' answer was? That which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. What he's saying to Nicodemus is, what you do in the flesh will only give birth to more of the same issues. To more of the same drama. Underneath it all is still your own heart. What you do in the flesh, aside from God, or ignoring God's ways and his plans for your life, will only breed more of what you already have. I love what Richard Loveless says. If our hearts and minds are not properly transformed, we are like musicians playing untuned instruments or engineers working with broken and ill-programmed computers. Ezekiel the prophet tells us what Jesus is after. He says, I will give you a new heart and I will give you a new spirit and I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. What he's saying is that all the tension that you and I feel about reinventing ourselves, about this new new you, new year, or getting a new life, or a fresh beginning, all that begins not with the external renewal, but an internal renewal. You need a change of heart. You can't give yourself a new heart. But man, our culture tries, don't we? New York Times author and the author of the book, Reinventing You, says the top three ways to reinvent yourself. Here's the top three ways, all right? I promised we're not about this in this sermon, but here's, here's a few ways. She says this, make a special effort to familiarize yourself with social media and new technology, okay? Recognize that you're likely to be unqualified for certain jobs, and it could be the elephant in the room, so it's important to bring it up first. So maybe say that you're looking for a new adventure and you don't need to be the boss. You're ready to be a team player, Number three, surprise people to counter any fixed image that they may have of you. So your resume may say one thing, but that doesn't mean it's the only thing you can do. Show you're serious about reinventing yourself, perhaps by volunteering or writing a blog, something that forces people to see you in a new way. 
Now compared to this, four years ago, I preached a sermon and I talked about my struggle with mental health. I talked about in my late, and, and if you've heard me preach before, you may have heard this story in the past. I talked about in my late 20s, I almost committed suicide. And I talked about how God got me through that, that season in life. And this lady came up to me after the service, and she's, I'll never forget this moment. She said, in tears, she said, Pastor Joe, I want you to know that last night I wrote my last letter. And I heard your sermon today, and I just felt like God was saying, keep going. And Pastor Joe, I want you to know I'm not going to kill myself later today. New life doesn't come from reinvention, but by regeneration. Where God gives new birth, a new heart, a new reason for living, a new way of seeing life. And yes, the struggle is real. And yes, mental health is real. And yes, there are moments of depression that seem so hard to get out of. But what God is saying is it's not, you can't reinvent your way out of depression or mental health crisis or whatever it might be for you. What you need is a new heart. And what baptism does is it shows us that God regenerates a man or a woman. And it also tells the story of our regeneration and the depths that Jesus went to get us to new life. So what is God's pattern for renewal? Well, number one, Jesus was covered by the waters of judgment. Verse, uh, chapter 1, John, uh, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus steps forward from the crowd, and he says, John the Baptist says, Here is the Son of God, the Word made flesh. He is perfect, sinless, spotless, and righteous. He doesn't need to repent. He doesn't need forgiveness. He doesn't need to be reborn. And yet he steps into the water, into the chaotic waters that symbolizes our sin, our judgment, and Jesus steps into our mess, our wickedness, taking on our judgment, and he identifies with us. It's a dramatic expression of intent. That Jesus is symbolically engulfed in the waters of judgment. And all those stories from the Old Testament were setting us up to understand this very Mark 1, when Jesus came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And he says, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Notice that once again the spirit is involved. God the spirit descends on God the son. God the father speaks from heaven. Mark makes emphasis that this took place immediately after Jesus came out of the water, out of the chaos, out of the judgment, out of taking on our sin, the spirit with new life descends on Jesus. The triune God is united in affirming this act of identification with you and with me through baptism. He's identifying with sinners as, as the drops run down his face. You can picture it, can't you? 
having passed through the waters of judgment, he receives the verdict. God the Father says, you are my son. I love you. You give me pleasure. And he does this to be counted as if he was a sinner. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How does he take away the sins of the world? By taking on the chaotic waters of our sin. So first, Jesus takes on the waters of judgment. And next, we see Jesus emerges out of the water with new life. Baptism is that promise in physical form. I love what Marcus Peter Johnson put, says it. He says this, baptism is not something other than the gospel. It is the gospel in three-dimensional form. The experience, the assurance of which we live for the rest of our lives. In other words, we're meant to live a baptized life. Verse 33 for theologians in our text is called the baptism of the spirit. This is another word for regeneration. And all of redemptive history is a foreshadow of what happens when you and I are baptized with the Spirit. For some traditions, they will say that baptism of the Spirit happens after you're born again, or if you tap into more gifts, you get the gifts of the Spirit. But I love what John Stott says. He just makes it clear. He says, all who have the Spirit of God are the sons and daughters of God. And all who are the sons and daughters of God have the spirit of God. It is impossible, indeed inconceivable, he says, to have the spirit without being a son or daughter or to be a son or daughter without having the spirit. So what is verse 33 in our text saying? It's saying that Jesus is coming to baptize you in the transformational resurrection life that the spirit of God provides. So for you, if you're not a Christian today, the invitation is for you to come and to have a spiritual baptism and later then follows the physical baptism, but the physical baptism is only a symbol of what has already taken place in your life by regeneration or by baptism of the Spirit. Why is this so important? Because when you and I are baptized by the Spirit, when we are regenerated, when we are brought from death to life, the gift is that you and I are placed in union with Christ. Remember the Joshua 3, God commands the priest to take the ark across the waters for the river Jordan, but to keep distance from the people. The people are still separated from God so that they were not able to experience the benefits of Christ. Baptism of the Spirit means that you and I have this bond of union between us and Christ. We have one living inside of us who has the power of God. The Spirit is the bond of union that allows you and me to say, I am in Christ. I just, I love, maybe it's the history buff in me or the nerdiness, but all of history has been leading up to the point for you and for me to say, I am in Christ. And because of that union, then God places you and me 
into a family. Look what, look what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So God places us in union, places us in a family. God's pattern of renewal is that Jesus was covered by the waters of judgment. He emerges out of the water with new life. And now he's inviting you into the waters of renewal. What reinvention cannot do is change your status. It might change your social media status. But it can't fundamentally change how you feel about yourself when the lights are off and nobody's around. The shame and guilt that you and I carry, maybe it is from the past year, it goes so much deeper. And what baptism is, is a symbolic act. It, but it's a symbolic act that changes your status. At the end of the ministry, his ministry on earth, Jesus told his disciples, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. So there, go therefore, you guys know this verse? And make disciples of all the nations. And what does he say? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In other words, go make disciples of all nations so that all of them can say they're in Christ. So that they can go out and tell more people that they're in Christ and they can be in Christ. Invite them into these new waters of Renewal, because what baptism is, for you and for me, baptism is a naming ceremony. We now carry, just like what we just read from Jesus in the, in the um, Great Commission, we now carry the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a ceremony that says, because God went into the chaotic waters of my sin first, I'm going to follow him out of the waters, into the waters of renewal. So what this means for you and for me is we no longer carry the names that defined us in 2022 or before then. We don't carry the names that someone else has given to you or to me. I'll tell you what, there is one thing that someone said to me so many years ago. Someone so important to me. I don't even know if this person meant it at the time. But he said, I'd be, a, I'd be a failure like him one day. Has anyone ever said that sort of thing to you or something different? And so we carry these names with us. Maybe it's not failure. Maybe it's less than. Maybe it's unsuccessful. Maybe it's you are too much of this, too much of that. We carry these names with us. But like on my wedding day, when I said yes to Lillian and, and she said I do to me, our status was forever changed. I didn't feel all that different right? I was, you know, just me. But my identity changed completely. It's not that you need to live like a married person so that you can be, become more married. It is the other way around. You get married so that you can live as a married person. So we can't be half married or half single. You, you are completely married if you're married. It's the same with baptism. 
Baptism changes your status. It's not that you need to live like a Christian so that you become more Christian. Baptism declares that you and I are in Christ. You have died with him and risen with him. Spirit baptism is a reality-shifting, paradigm-changing moment that shifts all your allegiances to Christ. And like when I got married, what I did naturally started to change because of my new status. And I have a new status, but my old narratives still have a platform. And what John 4, what John is saying is, one of, my, one of my favorite encounters in the Gospels, actually, let me go there. One of my favorite encounters in the Gospels is when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman. Anybody read that story before? He meets a Samaritan woman at a well that he... He shouldn't have been at, at least according to political and Jewish um, tradition and, and customs. But he goes for it. And he asked the woman, he's sitting there, and this, this woman, this Samaritan woman comes with a bucket. And she starts getting more water for herself. And he asked the woman who has the bucket to draw him some water. And she, of course, begins to ask questions, right, just like any of us would. Because she's kind of offended by the request. And in John 4, it tells us, she says this, How is it that you, Jesus, a Jew, asked for a drink from me, from me, a Samaritan woman? And she asked him, For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God who is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. She says, sir, you don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep, so where do you get this living water? But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never, Jesus said, will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up from, for eternal Life. It's this picture of where the Garden of Eden would meet in the, where water would meet in the middle of the Garden of Eden, and all source of life would come from the wellspring of water in the garden. And Jesus is saying to this woman, I mean, there's so many people in the world, and he chooses this woman, this woman with so much baggage, so many names she's carrying into the moment with Jesus. Because later on we find out she had five husbands, maybe another one. She's, she slept around. She has a reputation. She goes to the well at this time, at this time of day, because she knows if she goes at any other time of day, all the other ladies of the community will be there, and they'll start talking about her, and she'll hear the names brought up again that she has probably identified with for, for decades now, and Jesus chooses to say, to reveal this prophetic word to this woman and says, what I can offer you is like what was going on in the Garden of Eden, like the waters, the wellspring of water, of life in the garden will come to you, and I promise you will never thirst just like Eve and Adam experienced. He's offering her renewal. And he invites her into a new status. What if you and I, 
we'll end here. What if you and I, apprentice of Jesus, live the coming year embracing our new status? What if as a church we said we need God's radical renewal, not self-renovation? We need the waters of renewal that Christ is baptized with, that you and I are baptized with. When we come to Christ, it means union with Christ, but it also means the gift of being God's people. Church, imagine a church that is, who has the Spirit, is led by the Spirit, and lives by the Spirit. What would 2023 look like if Valley Community Church was the church who, along with other gospel-believing churches, who has the Spirit, is led by the Spirit, and lives by the Spirit. A church united to Christ through spiritual baptism. Knowing that, as Paul said, that we have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. A church united to Christ who the whole fullness of deity dwells. A church that seeks renewal for its city and rejects the idea that my life is my own. And maybe today you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, and we're so glad that you're here. But maybe today is the invitation that God has ordained from the beginnings of time to reach out by his grace and to open your heart and to say, come. Come get a new status. Come and drink from the water that will cause you to never thirst again. I want to invite you to do that as you're sitting down right now. A couple next steps as we, uh, as we wrap up today. Couple next steps. Uh, first of all, you know, what you meditate on is the greatest tool for your radical renewal. So, scripture meditation. Maybe this year we devote ourselves to what can radically form us and renew us. Or maybe for you, you've gotten away from spending time in, with God's people. You know, God's work of renewal is profoundly social. I would even say and argue that we cannot experience the fullness that God has for our lives apart from the body of Christ. So a couple next steps, scripture meditation and life together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your radical renewal. We thank you for... the waters of renewal. We thank you that you have woven into history a plan of redemption to take on the waters of judgment that we all know we deserve. You're coming out of the water with a new life. So Father, I pray that this year, maybe we have some goals to meet, maybe we do want to see some changes in our lives, but Lord, help us to lean into Radical renewal. Help us to be the people of God that is led by the Spirit, lives by the Spirit. And I pray for those who maybe come to Christ for the first time today, Father, that they would know 
that they are loved, that they are known, they have been chosen by you. And so, Father, we, we pray, would you do your radical renewal work in our lives? And as we approach the table of grace, help us to be reminded of what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.